Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Welcome, everybody, to episode eight of the Great Birth Rebellion. As I'm recording, B is currently at the Australian College of Midwives Conference. So it's me riding solo today, but I have invited one of my amazing friends. <laughs> and I'm going to introduce, so this is what I've been doing with guests lately, is I've been trying to interview them based on what I know of them. And then I'm going to let you fill in the gaps. Amazing. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, Amy Aroha is here with me today. And you may know her from her Instagram presence at Rip Snorter. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, totally profound. I can't bear to let it go. How did it come about? I'm interested. Well, Rip Snorter is like have a Rip Snorter a day. It's Australian slang, right, which means good or excellent or whatever. And when I started getting, when I started Instagram, I was like, oh, just what, what's the first thing that pops in my head? Have a rip snorter of a day, rip snorter. And then like 10 years on and I've built a pretty massive community on there. And my career is like very much channeled through there and it's remained. So it's really just holding on strong and I can't bear to let it go. I've got some weird attachment to it. Well, you can't change it now because no. people won't know who you are. Amy Aroha, who the hell is that? Yes. So Amy, I met Amy because I was her midwife for her second baby. And I've invited Amy because I want to talk about giving birth at home. We did touch on this in episode two of The Great Birth Rebellion, but I wanted to dedicate an episode to birthing at home. Well, partly because I'm a home birth midwife. I had my babies at home. B had her babies at home. Amy had her last two babies at home. And first one in hospitals. And Amy's had a variety of experiences. One baby born in hospital, one baby born at home intended to be accompanied by a midwife, but, you know, her buddy had other ideas. (laughs) Gave birth before the midwife arrived by about, I think, 10 minutes or so. Yeah. 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 And then a third baby planned to be at home with just her and her family. So... Amy now lives in beautiful Byron Shire. Is that what we call yeah. it? Northern yeah. Rivers. Yeah. Northern Rivers mm-hmm. with her family, three children, and Nick. My beautiful partner, Nick. Nick. Yeah. He's, what's his Instagram? Nick. Nick Potts. Nick W. Potts. He's an amazing artist and dad. Such Correct. a good daddy. Good so dad. many muscles, too, on Instagram. Oh my God, you saw. Is he working on himself? It's literally from carrying babies. Holy moly. (laughs) Literally from carrying babies. A little bit of surfing, but mostly baby carrying. And also homesteading because you guys are getting hard into homesteading now, right? Yeah. By the way, I think homesteading comes alongside homeschooling because you're homeschooling as well and home birthing. It's Mm -hmm. just this natural flow. It seems to make sense in with this lifestyle Mm -hmm. you're also is it transpersonal counseling yeah transpersonal holistic transpersonal counseling and birth mentoring Mm -hmm. can you explain what 
holistic transpersonal counseling is? So holistic, obviously looking at the whole picture, the whole the whole health of a person and transpersonal means to go beyond the ego. So beyond the personal identity and into more unconscious layers of our human experience as well as esoteric, so the spiritual aspect of our lives and how we experience our lives. So transpersonal goes really hand in hand with art therapy because we use art as a medium and that can be art as, you know, drawing, painting, writing, music, movement to tap into this other aspect of ourselves and learn more about ourselves through that lens. Mm -hmm. And you're also moving into serving the birthing community And where do you see your place in that? It's been, it's always rolling, right? Like it's always changing and evolving. I thought I was a doula at first. And then I realized I, when I was showing up in that space, we were doing really, really deep connected work around like the psycho-spiritual, psychosocial aspects of birth. So what was naturally and organically coming through in our prenatal sessions was, you know, these, this is how I was born. And this is the way I feel that that's imprinted me or or affecting me in my life, or these are, you know, some stories that my family have been carrying for many generations that I feel are coming through for me right now that I want to process and break so I don't pass it on to my child. And so then I sort of moved into more like pre and postnatal care from a psychosocial, psychospiritual perspective. So supporting people to look at those cycles that have been present in their families for a long time and um, helping them or witnessing them in working through it so that they can free themselves from that before they bring their children in. Um, And that doesn't necessarily mean that's gone forever, that cycle, but just becoming aware of it and noticing where that's coming up so that they can parent their children and birth their children in a more liberated way. Mm. Mm -hmm. So today, and, you know, we chatted earlier because you're putting a course together about liberating birth. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, and you're doing a lot of work in the space of decolonization Mm. in general, but also specifically decolonizing birth. Mm-hmm. So we're going to use that as a starting point, I think, because I feel like the colonization of society, it's trickled down to birth, obviously, as everything always does, because birth is part of life. Uh, so could you talk us through what is colonization? Because I think most Australians don't think about colonization. Do you have like a bite-sized explanation? <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably start with decolonization. So yeah. decolonization isn't necessarily going back to a pre-colonial society. It's really understanding that the, the paradigm or the systems that are in place are in place through colonial lens, right? So they've been established from colonization. Australia is a very new country in, in how we understand it. It's an ancient country with an ancient peoples, but very recently in terms of history, it's been colonized. So we understand the systems that were built from that colonization as being sort of the only way. This is the way things are. This is the way things have always been. But of course, that's not true. There are, you know, ancient traditional societies all around the world that are experiencing colonization in in varying ways who have been here long before um, the world as we understand it. Um, So I think decolonizing is the process of starting to understand that we see things through a particular lens. I'm talking we collectively, obviously there's so Mm -hmm. much within that but that's kind of how colonization that's how these systems work is by placing one way or one lens 
above all others. And actually this is the right way and this is how we do things because this is just how it is and what works. And we have to be able to have conversations about how these systems are actually really new and are failing a lot of people in society and, of course, in the context of birth, failing women and birthing people. I feel like when we talk about the colonisation of society and, and how to decolonise it and how there's one perspective that's get, that gets sold as the right and best way to be, it really rings similar to what's happened to birth in terms of how it's been medicalized. Mm-hmm. So in the same way as, I guess, society has been westernized through the process of colonization and this perspective of there being only one right and correct way, birth has also been colonized or medicalized by an industry that wants to sell birth as dangerous and scary. And yeah, so I see the two as very much connected. Well, the industrialization of birth is like inherently linked to colonization as a whole. Mm-hmm. It's just another way of and another place that colonization manifests. And I can speak from my my lineage. My ancestry is Maori, so I'm on my paternal line from tribes of Toraroa and Napui. And we were only recently colonized. And over time, through that process, we went from being a people's that birth was very normal. We were very fertile. We birthed at home in our family systems. We had our traditional birth keepers or healers, Tohunga, there with us. And then there was a very concerted push to take birth out of the home and to put it into the institution. So uh, Maori women were, you know, it started out as a push uh, for reasons such as you're not going to be able to register your child and you have to be able to register your child for that child to be considered legitimate and for you to be able to access resources or financial support, for instance. And so they would be pushed out of the home and into the hospital. Then they started criminalising our traditional birth keepers. So it was punishable by law to be tohunga, to be a healer. So our traditional birth keepers were unable to practice and attend birth. So that's another way that they, that through colonisation we were pushed into the hospital system. So over a pretty short period of time, we went from birth being this normal experience that was a family and community experience to being a very sterile, institutionalised medical event that was incredibly traumatising. So that was where, you know, we were pushed on our backs. We were medicated. All of these things were completely foreign concepts. We'd been birthing, being held up, squatting, you know, being held by our aunties, our mothers, our sisters, being out on the birthing tree. And so colonisation has a direct, has had a direct impact on Indigenous women and peoples around the world, but of course, everybody, because then that becomes the system. That's the normal system that we believe or are told is like the right way, the safest way, the only way. This is a term that, so there's a term that describes this, and I feel like I'm the only one that bangs on about it. And when I heard, when I heard this term, when I was doing my PhD, because my PhD was in birth outside the system, there's a term called authoritative knowledge. And this, I feel like this is what describes exactly what's happened with colonization, with industrialization, and with medicalization. And we'll define those terms further in a moment. But when you medicalize something, it's to make it, it's to turn it into something medical where it wasn't before. Birth has been made medical. It, it wasn't before. There was a time where birth was not considered medical. And so this term, authoritative knowledge is a term that describes how a particular idea and a particular philosophy becomes the authority. So there's a process by which 
a certain message or understanding becomes the authoritative message in society. And the idea behind authoritative knowledge is not that it's true. It doesn't have to be true to be authoritative. It just has to be accepted by the majority. Mm -hmm. And it has to, whoever holds the authoritative knowledge also holds power. So it's more of a power thing. So whoever is in power puts forward their perspective on something. So if we think about it as birth, medical people are in charge of birth then they tell everybody that birth is a medical event that's scary and that needs expert supervision and without it, you're all in danger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then anybody who opposes the authoritative message gets positioned as stupid, idiotic, irrelevant, mm-hmm. fringe dwellers, rebellious, and they're considered outside of society. And so this is what happens to women who make birth choices as well that are outside of the authoritative system in Australia. So the authoritative system is 93% of women have their babies within a hospital institution. About 6% have them in birth centres and there's less than 1% who have their babies at home. And then there's a portion who choose to free birth. So the people who don't go to these birthing institutions are considered to be rebels against the authoritative message of birth. It, it's exactly, it's, I mean, it's a framework. It's a way to gain power and it's a way to have people, you know, you don't, need to be policed anymore or you don't need to be have the system coming to your door like my ancestors experienced and having you know removing you from your home or like indigenous people still are here in this on this land it's now a cultural thing it's a cultural upholding of this because to birth at home or to go against the authoritative knowledge is as you said you're a heretic right like you're um you're the odd one out um and so the people around us are upholding that that knowledge that type of knowledge. And yet it's so deeply entrenched and woven through the fabric of our society. Um, And that's much like, you know, experiences of Indigenous peoples around the world through the lens of white supremacy is, well, okay, you can be Indigenous, but you still have to be able to fit into this framework. Mm. You have to assimilate into the colonised way. And anybody who doesn't is considered wrong Mm -hmm. because the authoritative knowledge and the people in power are considered to be right. Mm-hmm. But the thing with authoritative knowledge is that it's not necessarily true. Yes. It's just the story that everyone believes. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't believe it, if 95% of the people believe that story, they're like, well, yeah, everybody does it that way. That's what everybody believes. It must be right. It must be the best. Otherwise, why would we be doing it? It was, I mean, it's a form of slow systematic brainwashing. Literally. And yeah. then somehow there's a small proportion who kind of, look around and go, um, why are we all going to hospital to give birth? Like, why are we all living in this white Western way? Why is that better? And then when you start to scratch at the surface, none of the research supports this message that giving birth in the hospital is the best and safest. Mm-hmm. There's no great conclusive evidence that if you're a well-healthy woman with a well-healthy baby, that being at hospital is the best, but that's the cultural understanding of birth and somehow mm-hmm. it's considered to be right. So I want to go there. So, well, this episode we're going to talk about giving birth at home, which for all intents and purposes really is a decision against the authoritative knowledge of today, of the birthing message that we're sold today. So if we think about what is the authoritative message that we're told, and the authoritative message is that hospital is the best place to have a baby because that's the safest because birth goes wrong. And if it does go wrong, you want to have the best experts there 
to save you and your baby from certain death or disability. So that's what everyone thinks about birth is that it's fundamentally dangerous. And so just to be safe, go to the place where all of the experts are with all of the machines and the surgery and hands and knowledge. Yes. So that's the authoritative message. So then women choose to give birth at home in that context. So when you choose to give birth at home, the first thing that people say is, oh my gosh, aren't you scared? Or wow, you're brave for making these decisions because it's against the authoritative knowledge and people can't even comprehend how you could possibly be safe by giving birth at home. So I'm wondering if you could tell us about your decision to give birth at home with a midwife for the second birth. Yeah. So when I, I mean, I was 24, 25 when I had my eldest daughter. And for me, I, I never had any fear around birth. I always just thought birth was this thing that we did and it was totally fine and normal. And why wouldn't I be able to give birth? But I also didn't consider that there could be any other way than just doing it in the hospital because that's what everybody did. And I had my birth experience. I labored for 15 hours basically by myself at home and when my partner at the time came home and you know we labored together for a while I didn't want to go to hospital I actually at one point and I believe that I was really nearing or in transition ran up the stairs to the bedroom and was on all fours and he had to call the midwife and I didn't want to go and that was a very primal thing I ended up going at the time felt that I had a really easeful, perfect birth experience. I was only in hospital for 20 minutes. I didn't even go into the birth suite. I was in an examination room, still wearing my dress and birthed my baby without a tear, without any drugs. So for me, that was a brilliant experience. It wasn't until many years later and sort of expanding my myself as a woman and how I lived and viewed the world that I looked back and realized that there were things that happened that didn't need to happen and that my body was actually holding like a level of pain. I don't want to use trauma because I think that's too extreme for for what I was experiencing, but definitely holding a memory. So for me, that was having a non-consensual vaginal exam during a contraction where I was saying no. Afterwards, I was given a catheter for no reason other than they gave me Sinto to bring the placenta out. So learning more, becoming more of who I am, looking back with a different lens, noticing things differently. So when it came time to birth seven, it was six years on and I had drastically changed my life. I was living off grid up in the Blue Mountains and, you know, I've always been pretty anti-establishment. I tend not to, you know, engage Western medicine, like unless I really have to or really feel that that's the right thing to do. Um, so why would I birth my baby in, in a hospital? It was essentially not even a conversation with my partner. It was just, obviously, we're going to birth this baby at home. This is how we live. Why would we birth any different? And yes, yeah, so it was actually really, at that time, a really easy decision to come to. And then, of course, we reached out to you and connected with you and the rest is history, so they say. But for us, it was a really clear decision. Yes. And so there's that decision to give birth at home. And I'll probably, let's use this opportunity to sort of talk to women about how birth at home can happen here in Australia because it's very different all around the world. There's some countries who embed home birth into their current birthing systems and actually midwives who work in hospitals and in 
the healthcare system can attend women at home. That happens in the UK. I'm pretty sure that happens in New Zealand as well. That actually, yeah, yeah you can have your baby at home with a, a, a publicly employed midwife. Here in Australia, there are some home birth programs. I think there's about 14 or 16 mm. in the whole country. And mm-hmm. I believe that they will expand those over time, but that's a bit tricky. But again, in Australia, if you want to have a publicly funded home birth, you would have to be close to a publicly a public hospital that has a home birth program. You have to fit their criteria for getting in. So the criteria is quite strict in a sense that you can't have any risk factors in your pregnancy or for your baby that might introduce some complexity into your pregnancy. Then... If you can't get into the public home birth programs, the next option is to hire a private midwife to be your personal midwife. And some private midwives can come with you wherever you choose to go. So in Queensland, they've got a pretty sweet deal. A lot of the midwives can get access to hospitals and have visiting rights where you could hire a private midwife and basically say, I want to go to this hospital or I want to have my baby at home and those midwives can follow women to where they want to give birth. It's a pretty sweet spot in Queensland from what I understand, but the rest of the country doesn't have that amazing situation. Here in New South Wales, there's one hospital where midwives can have visiting rights if women want to hire a private midwife to go in hospital. Otherwise, if you hire a private midwife, you can give birth at home with with that midwife as a care provider or you can go to hospital, but the midwives are not allowed to work as midwives in a hospital. It's it's illegally against our registration mm-hmm. to provide midwifery care in a hospital if you don't have visiting rights. And then the catch with private midwives, obviously, like any private practitioner, is there's not a lot of public funding attached to it. So women have to pay out of pocket to hire this person to care mm-hmm. for them. Medicare does cover a portion of the fee if you if women want to hire a private midwife to be with them for birth. And the reason why women choose private midwives over a public system is firstly, there's not a lot of public home birth programs available. Secondly, a lot of these women get risked out of public home birth programs. So if you have any kind of risk factor that doesn't fit in with what they're allowed to do, they you just can't stay on the program or you can't go on the program. So then women come to private midwives who have fewer restrictions. We mm. do have to work to the Australian College of Midwives guidelines, but there's wiggle room in there because women still have the right to decline certain things and we have to do a lot of paperwork for these women who end up making decisions that are at what we call outside the guidelines. And so midwives on the whole, private midwives are really happy to do all this paperwork and give women education about their unique complexities so that they can make decisions about what they want to do. So we, it's not that we can't look after these women, we can. So that's kind of how you access a home birth in Australia. And then there's a portion of women who don't want any of that. None mm-hmm. of the hospital system, no, no private midwives, no public home birth programs. They just want to have their babies at home without a care provider. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that too. But the thing I forgot to mention is, sorry, I'm doing a lot of talking here. Love it. It's like I'm in a workshop. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this, the message that's sold about home birth is, whoa, that must be dangerous because birth is dangerous and that's why we all go to hospital. So why the hell would you stay at home? Yeah. Well, we have a stack of research. That's why. 
And that's why I've been a home birth midwife for 15 years because I can see that it is actually safe most of the time. So I'm going to get mail about that now because people are like, some babies do die. Some yeah. babies do get injured. Yes, absolutely true. Some babies do die and some babies do get injured in birth. And that's that happens everywhere. Yeah. That happens at home. That happens attended, unattended. That happens at hospital. It happens in birth centres. It happens in developing countries, Western countries, there's always a risk in birth that that you or your baby won't survive. That is an inherent risk that we can't, no matter how hard we try, of all the interventions we can give, of all the monitoring we can do, there's a small, very small proportion of babies who are injured and mothers who are injured or don't survive the birth process. It's really unfortunate and it should wouldn't it be amazing if it happened to nobody? Mm. But the reality that we have to know is, is that it does happen and it can happen wherever we are. And I'm yeah. really sorry if it's happened to you, somebody who's listening. It's it's the thing that practitioners would desperately love to, to solve. And we haven't worked out how to save every single baby and woman. And so women are forced to decide, well, where's the safest and best place to be in this process of birth? And that's different for everybody, depending on what your understanding of safety is. So hospitals really prioritize physical safety. We want to keep you all alive. And then then what happens is, is that they forget about emotional safety, yeah. cultural safety, social safety, psychosocial safety. And then, you know, we've got stats now where one third of women feel traumatized by their birth mm-hmm. process, even though they're alive and even though their baby's alive. You know, trauma doesn't come from sick babies or babies who have died. Yes, that's traumatic. But the trauma we're talking about for one third of women is emotional trauma. Yes. And so women have to start making decisions. Okay, what's the safest? So physically, physical safety, if we just look at that, if you're a woman who's healthy and well and your baby's healthy and well, you're physically, your baby is physically safe anywhere you choose, home, birth center, hospital. The difference is, is that these three settings will give you the same outcomes, but with varying differences in interventions. hmm So the hospital will keep you as physically safe as your home birth midwife will or your midwife in the birth centre. You'll be just as, your baby will be just as safe, but you'll have to have a lot more intervention in hospital to achieve that same level of safety that you'll get in less intervention settings like birth centres and at home. And also, you know, how safe, like even physically, right? So what is their definition of safety when when a baby is then you know, experiencing instrumental birth or, you know, being wounded through that. Um, and just because it's something that isn't life-threatening doesn't mean that it's not traumatizing or that they felt unsafe. The injuries that I support people through are really intense. I think the system perhaps wouldn't consider them to be intense. And that's the issue is that there's some really hard objective thoughts about what is a what is physical safety. So they look at mortality, which mm. is which is death. Then they look at morbidity, which is like how many babies were admitted to special care units and neonatal intensive care and what were their APGAR scores when they were born, like all these really objective, Mm -hmm. hard, obvious signs of well-being. So they also would consider a woman safe if she'd had an episiotomy and and then the baby came out with a vacuum and then they both went home 24 hours later. That's success in the eyes of the hospital. We kept them both alive. 
with minimal trauma, I'm doing like speech marks here. I don't accept their understanding of what it means to be safe. So the authoritative message about safety is different to what women actually experience. Yes. And so when the authoritative message is, oh, but you're alive and your baby is alive, why would you be traumatized? Mm -hmm. Like we kept you safe, Mm -hmm. again, speech marks, by their own definition. We kept you safe. So they've got their own criteria for what safety means. What we know from research actually is that women's perspective on safety Mm -hmm. does not resemble the authoritative message about what it means to be safe in childbirth. I want to say here too, like if you felt safe in hospital, that's amazing. And if you felt like that was the best and safest place for you, then that's where you should be to have your babies. You've got to be where you feel is best and safest. If you experience hospital birth and you didn't feel like it's best and safest, it's totally fine to take your perspective as the authority. And if other people are saying to you, you were kept safe and you are fine, that's their truth. That's not your truth. And so women will go and give birth where they feel is best and safest. And statistically speaking, if you just look at hard numbers from research, so we've got recent research here in Australia. It was done in 2019 and it looked at maternal and baby outcomes by planned place of birth in Australia. So there was 1,250,000 births Mm. in study and they looked at hospital births birth centers and at home and these were all women who were well and healthy and their babies were you know well and healthy so women without complexities in their pregnancy and what this study found was that compared with planned hospital birth the odds of normal labor and birth were over twice as high if you plan to have your baby in a birth center Mm -hmm. and nearly six times as high at a planned home birth six times better chances of having a normal labor and birth at home. And there were no statistically significant differences in the proportion of stillbirths, early or late neonatal deaths or or neonatal deaths, like baby deaths in the three places. So what they're saying is, is if you give birth at home, there's a very good chance that your baby is going to be as alive, you know, statistically Mm -hmm. as babies who were born in hospital but you've got a six times more chance of a normal birth at home. And that was, out, they had over 8,000, I'm looking at it, 8,212 home births is what they could look at. So what they did conclude though, with 8,000 births, 8,200 births, you can't detect the more rare incidences that might happen one in every 10,000 or one in every 20,000. That mimics international research as well is that for low-risk women, it doesn't matter where you go, you and your baby are likely to experience a level of physical safety that's, a, that's you know, for the definition of yes. safety of that we get from the hospital. What we get, though, from home birth is this amazing quality of experience that you act, that women, and, you know, the research talks about it as maternal satisfaction. these are the words that that we use like if you want to find out how acceptable a birthplace was to a woman the research would talk about maternal satisfaction (laughs) I don't know if it quite does it justice yes I was satisfied yeah it's so I mean enough said that's funny and it's like sort of drives me up the wall because I know that we need stats we need numbers people need numbers to really 
get a clear picture but also like it's established it's well established that home birth for low-risk people is largely the safest option mm-hmm. and that babies are safe in that environment mostly and so I wish we'd just believe it. I know I keep saying to people can we stop researching if home birth is safe please like we it's established we yeah, know that we know. Exactly. What we need now is to ask the question is, is hospital safe? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how dangerous, you know, because that's all, you know, when you look at free birth, home birth research, it's like the studies are like, is home birth safe? I'm like, okay, stop asking that question. Mm -hmm. Next question we need to ask is, is hospital birth safe? Mm Because that is not an evidence-based approach to Mm -hmm. helping birthing women is Mm -hmm. an animal hospital. There's no evidence that that actually is better for everybody. Mm-hmm. There is like, it's like the cultural piece, right? Like, because we know the numbers are there. We know the research is there. And so why isn't it landing on a cultural level? Like when is the cultural shift going to happen? And it is in, you know, pockets, but on a larger scale. And I think that like comes down to the colonization, right, of, of the mind that we were talking about before a little bit and that there has to be a level of personal work that goes into unraveling why we are holding on to this thing that's like largely failing us, low-risk people, because it's our own cultural messaging that's holding so strong to that ideology. Totally. And that's what the Great Birth Rebellion is about. Amen, sister. Why we are here is that. We're literally rebelling against the authoritative message against about birth and say and calling it out mm-hmm. and saying we actually have all been thoroughly lied to mm-hmm. and brainwashed about what birth is and what birth needs. And so the Great Birth Rebellion is about just waking people up to realize that that there's quite possibly a much better way than what's currently than what we're currently doing mm-hmm. and small pockets of people are realizing that and making decisions that are aligned to their own intuition mm-hmm. their own understanding of what's best and safest for them and also what the research evidence is actually saying to us as a society about what seems to be best for women and babies that but that's that's against the authoritative knowledge mm-hmm. of the day and so it's going to be a battle because if we want to completely decolonize and and demedicalize birth we actually have to take on the authority mm. and the people who hold authoritative knowledge and that's as pervasive in society as like the patriarchy is mm-hmm. where now women embody the patriarchy and start attacking each other and it's the same in birth it's like women turn around and go well you can't have a home birth that's dangerous and you're going to hurt your baby and that's crazy and so now we like you said start upholding the authoritative knowledge ourselves and it just spreads without being questioned so we're here to question the authoritative knowledge yes we are yes Because it's also individualistic, right, to to put the onus on the individual and that, okay, well, we just need to individually divest from the system. What was the number? 98% of people are birthing in the system. You know, there's that small proportion who have private midwives or who free birth that would be not connected to a public maternity system. And that's less than one, yeah, one, less than 1%. Yeah, so like 99% of the people are birthing in the system and a lot of those people are birthing within the system because they need to actually have, they still deserve the best care that they can get. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we're going to see it in my lifetime. 
No, we won't see it. There are women who benefit from being in a system that can offer them every intervention possible because there is a proportion of the population who need and must have medical intervention in order to be alive themselves in order for their babies to be alive. So in no way would I suggest if you have conditions that definitely need management, medical Mm. management, like that's the beauty of technology and skill and expertise is that even with really complex physical situations we can still survive and thrive so I am not anti-hospital and I'm not anti-institution I'm just anti-using them for everything and everyone yes and I think they would work so much better if they were just used for the people that really need them. Yeah. And we were talking the other day, going into hospital and hiring a doctor to look after you if you're well is like hiring a pediatrician to babysit your child. Like it's over the top. It's an unnecessary level of skill Mm -hmm. to have in a perfectly normal situation. I was making a point and I don't remember what it was. It's good anyway. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm just hijacking this whole podcast. <laughs> like, hey, Amy, come and listen to me talk for two hours. I'm here for it. Well, we might move to free birth. And I also am keen to talk about free birth and home birth culture because it's really unique in itself. A free birth is basically choosing not to engage a healthcare provider for your birth and to just go ahead and have your baby mm-hmm. without supervision of birth. Yes of a societal expert in birth. So some women might have a doula there or friends or a wise woman, their partners, their rest of their families. Nobody who has is kind of a registered healthcare provider to provide medical care if needed. Yes. Is that your understanding of free birth as well? Yeah. And I know there's like all different groups and definitions and that see things different ways. You know, some people will consider that it's only a free birth if you don't have anyone there, you know, not a birth keeper or anyone. But for me, my understanding is just birthing at home without a medical attendant. And what do you see? Because you're probably more entrenched in the free birth culture than I am at this point. I did my PhD. I finished it in 2015. So I look at it from a very academic perspective. You know, I asked people what motivated their choices to have a free birth. And we certainly know that some women come at it from deep-seated trauma from first birth. Some fundamentally do believe that any interruption in the birth space increased risk for them and their baby, and they want to reduce the risk of their birth. So they see um, the exclusion of extra people in the space as a way to keep safe. There are women who just fun, yeah, believe in their own authoritative knowledge and mm-hmm. just sort of go, well, birth's usually pretty safe. Mm-hmm. Then there's a pretty big proportion of women who would have preferred to have a home birth with a midwife but couldn't access it, but it wasn't their first choice. So when I look at it from like an academic perspective, that's what I see. And then I also see a, I guess I'm going to be careful with the words here because I don't want to upset people, but I want to open up the conversation. Just open it up. Just open it up, Mel. Yeah. Oh, great. That's everybody, everybody just, you know, we walk tentatively and, and, and acknowledge nuance and everybody to, uh, you know, is responsible for their own feelings. And if you're noticing yourself getting activated or triggered, just Check in with your body. Take a few deep breaths. We acknowledge nuance. We acknowledge the complexity. All right. This is now a safe space because Amy's (laughs) opened it up to be so. (laughs) So I noticed that because it's probably a more extreme decision to to be free birthing amongst this, you know, when we look at authoritative knowledge and the choice to free birth, 
and the newness of free birth because historically women were supported by wise women mm-hmm. and by women in their society who knew about birth. So midwives are mentioned out throughout history. Wise women and medicine women were mentioned throughout history as being present at birth. So the new newness of free birth is one thing, just like the newness of hospital birth is a thing. But there's an extreme wing of free birth that kind of becomes culty. Mm-hmm. like it creates a following and it becomes less about birth and more. Yeah, well, it becomes dogmatic and that there is like this hierarchical, this hierarchy of birth and what, what it means to truly have a powerful birth and what it means to be a powerful woman. And free birth has really become, you know, in some arms of the culture, that that's like the holy grail, right? Like, well, I birthed my baby by myself. I was fully in my power. And that's true, like for so many people, that that's how they felt. But then there's others who maybe, you know, through this like dogmatic understanding might actually betray themselves and and their needs by trying to aspire to this hierarchy rather than tuning into, you know, what is it that I want? Maybe I actually really need somebody in my space to witness me in my power. Maybe I really need someone in my space to make me a cup of tea afterwards, you know, and tuck me into bed and and take down the pool and do those things. Because as you said, ancestrally, we we didn't birth alone. I'm sure there were instances and there have been cultures where maybe a woman went off and birthed by herself, but largely we would be in community, in family and with an attendant. So yeah, I think dogma has no place in birth. D- birth is like the antithesis of that. Birth is wild. Birth is um, unpredictable. It's like at its core, uh, like a rebel, you know, you think it's going one way, it goes another. It's, we can't control it. And so I think when people start putting parameters around such a free and wild thing as birth in any capacity, whether that's like institutional, the institutional parameters or, you know, dogmatic free birth parameters, we do it in injustice and we do each other and ourselves in injustice. Free birth can be held up and glorified, like you said, as the pinnacle of birth. And then everything else starts to be looked down upon as less Mm. and not as good. And like, well, if you needed someone in your space, then maybe there's more work that you need to do in yourself. That's literally, I've actually seen that pretty much exact quote somewhere. I can't even remember how it was worded, but something about if she needs someone to support her through her pregnancy or the emotional stuff that comes up for her pregnancy, then she hasn't done enough or she doesn't know herself well enough or some crap like that. And it's really counter to what we're wired as humans to need and to want through such a massive initiation into parenthood where naturally things are coming up for us and we're stepping across the threshold into mothering. And like, we really are wired to be witnessed through that in some capacity. Uh, Societies become individualistic. Yes. In the sense that we're expected to have the capacity to do everything for ourselves and be self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. No, that doesn't work in so many areas of life. Mm-hmm. And a woman's brain actually, there's parts of it that physically turn off during birth. And that's a requirement for the birth hormones to actually flow is part of your brain has to stop working to make way for this primitive brain that takes over the process of birth. And if you interrupt that process, the process of birth is interrupted. So we intentionally don't ask a lot of questions to a laboring woman because her mind has literally turned off the capacity to make complex decisions intentionally because it's put all its energy into, into this physiological process of birth. 
mm-hmm. and making that hormonal cascade be uninterrupted. It's bringing women out of the physiological laboring process. And, and I think that's the role of a wise person in the birth space is for the woman to use her autonomy to say, I want the freedom to completely concentrate on giving birth mm-hmm. in a space where I feel safe. And so I'm handpicking these people to take a level of responsibility over something at my birth. So mm-hmm. for women who choose to have a home birth midwife there, they're saying, I would like to completely focus on birthing and you are in this space to let me know if things, if there's something going wrong and mm-hmm. then to do something about it for me. Mm-hmm. And so the woman's giving away that responsibility to the midwife to someone Mm. that she trusts and someone that she's chosen. And so, you know, when women talk about free birth as being the ultimate autonomy, I mean, it is because, you know, you literally are the decision maker and whoever is in the space, you know, is there for you, which is ideal. Well, that's what it's supposed to be. But everyone in that space still has a level of responsibility Mm. that the woman's given to them. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Mm. I think that is a full expression of autonomy is being able to make the decisions about who will care for you and where you'll be and what everyone's responsibility is, is to actually be dictating that in your birth space. And asking for help or, or knowing that you are curating a team around you is is being autonomous, yes. like a self-appointing yourself as the person at the centre of these people and giving these people responsibilities within your space. You can be autonomous. It's not giving away your power because you ask for help. And there's a really big, it's really important that when considering free birth, you know, we really feel into the level of responsibility that we want to take on in that situation. Exactly what you said. If I'm losing too much blood, if, you know, what baby's coming out feet first, bum, bum first, whatever, like what am I going to do in that situation? If there's a cord, the cord comes out. Like, what's my plan? Am I going to be able to navigate that situation at home on my own? Do I want to? Because you might acknowledge, yeah, I'm able to, but do I want to? Or do I want to be guided through that and have support through that? And am I okay with the risk that comes with that? And knowing that there's no one else in that space other than me that is responsible for whatever unfolds or whatever choice, you know, I make within that space. And that's a big decision. And some people, make that decision. You know, that was my choice. I felt okay. I felt good about that. I felt capable of doing that. I wanted to do that. I understood that when I was choosing to free birth Ember, that babies do die and it is a horrible, horrible tragedy. I wish it didn't happen, but it does sometimes. And would I be able to live with myself if my baby was born still, or if something happened and I was unable to save my baby? And I said, yes, I would be able to live with myself with the choices that I made, because I believe that it at the time, it was the safest choice for me to birth at home with people I love and trust deeply. And that's a, a really, we, you know, my partner and I had to sit down and talk about that. Like, what are we willing to do that? And are we willing to stand by our choice if it didn't go the way that we, you know, so hope that it, that it goes? And compounding that, we did a hell of a lot of research around neonatal resuscitation, around we had plans, you know, what if there's a cord prolapse? Okay, this is what I have to do and this is your responsibility within that. So people that free birth often are, you know, incredibly 
educated around the physiology of birth and around birth emergencies. It's not something that should be or is taken lightly. But then when we see this, so then when we see this like pervasive, you know, this like new kind of colonizing that comes out when we start seeing an industry being made out of something, because now free birth is an industry, which is like lunacy, right? Well, we're trapping free birth, yes. When we see industry sprouting from something, then we see like those parameters that we were talking about before coming around it. We see heroes that arise. And so I think it's just really important that people are, you know, it's very centered within our, us and our and what we are capable of and not what we're trying to achieve per se. You know, it's like birth is an achievement, of course, in all of its manifestations, but. No, I get what you're saying, you know, and with the power stuff that we were talking about, you know, and women are like, no, you know, I gave birth in my power and with my authority. It's an expression of power to curate a birth that you want in a place that you want with the people that you want. Mm-hmm. And I wrote about this in my thesis too, how the choice to free birth is motivated by the same decision-making process as women who choose to have elective cesareans without mm-hmm reason and women who talk about choosing a cesarean section without a medical reason talk about how in control they felt Mm. to know that they could dictate every little aspect of their birthing process there's so much choice within that decision to have an elective cesarean section that felt so powerful for them and that's the same motivating factors as women who choose to have a free birth, it's like, oh, I can choose so much. I can choose who's going to be there, who's not going to be there. You know, all this stuff, the own timing, the location, the, you know, but each of them has inherent risk. One is major surgery. And if a woman understands the risks of that, and then in free birth, in all birth, you know, there's always the potential for something to go wrong. And in free birth, do you feel like, yeah, like you said, willing to take that risk? And some women see, like, I would like to take the risk of birth at home and I'm going to mitigate that risk by doing certain things. And so women who free birth mitigate by doing certain things like Mm -hmm. you, how you did, you know, neonatal resuscitation courses and all these things. And and some people see having a midwife in the space as mitigating risk. Yes. People ask me like, oh, my gosh. Or they'll say to my clients, what are you going to do if something goes wrong? And the women say, well, what happens if something goes wrong? And I'm like, well, that's why I'm here. I'm not here if something goes right because literally whatever my hands do, if something goes right, whatever my hands do are what anybody's hands could do. Anyone can stop a baby from landing on the floor. Mm -hmm. Anybody can push your baby in your direction in a birth pool so you can pick it up. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I'm there for women if I'm needed, not if things go right. Because if things Mm -hmm. go right, it was going to go right whether I was there or not. And so, yeah, I think when we think about power in the birth space, it's not about if you free birth, home birth, go to hospital, have elect to have a cesarean section. It's about how much how much power you had over the decision making processes. Yeah, yeah. and that's powerful birth. A, a, a parent who you know chooses an elective cesarean for whatever their personal reasons may be. She and I are comrades. You know, like we have more in common than we have dif- indifferent. You know, yeah. because we both cop shit from society. Like yeah. we both cop shit from authoritative knowledge. We're both like divesting from this idea that we have to perform some certain way in order to be the good girl that births our babies the way people want us to. And I think we really need to celebrate that and to invite the differences to the table so that we can really learn how to center women and people who birth babies. That's just what, that's what it is. That's what we need to be centered in the experience. It's really not hard. 
So it's a rebellious act to select and execute and pursue the thing that you believe is best and safest for you in birth. And to me, that is liberated birth is mm. being free to make the decisions that you feel are best and safest and pursue them. But there's so many barriers to that mm-hmm. as well, like for women who. Yeah, free. And I think a lot of, you know, in my community and, and people and friends that have free birth, it's so much more than the birth of our baby. The birth of our baby is so much, right? Like it's the, the best, the absolute golden, you know, piece to, to it. But then, like, we're actually also centred within that and our experience matters. It's a revolution often that we can't shy away from. Like, when we birth in our power, and I'm speaking from my perspective as someone who free births and would free birth again, but, of course, I'm sure there's people that chose an elective cesarean or had other kinds of birth experiences that can resonate. Like, when we are in our power through that experience, a veil is lifted and it impacts so many other areas of our life. As you said before, this continuity between like home birth and homesteading and homeschooling. It's like, if I can do this, if I can birth my baby after all of the lies and all of the conditioning and all of the oppression that my, you know, we have experienced for so many years, what else can I do? Mm -hmm. What else have I been lied about, lied to about? And it's, it can set us free. And so you know, just what you were talking about before with what could go wrong. It's always people coming to me, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? But what could go right? Mm -hmm. What if it could go right? What if you could have, you know, the most beautiful, powerful, expansive experience of your life and be forever changed? And the foundation that's, you know, set beneath you and your family is one that is staunch and strong and powerful, that is unshakable and unfuckwithable. Dangerous, dangerous person to the status quo, right? Yes. Like what else have I been told that I can't do that actually I can? What else have I been told that, you know, especially around our bodies and then like, wow, my body can actually do this incredibly profound, amazing, crazy psychedelic thing um, and I can do it feeling powerful. It's really, I mean, like talk about liberation. Mm. And the thing that keeps us entrapped in following what the authoritative knowledge says about birth is that they tell us it's super painful that we're going to need pain relief and then they tell us it's super dangerous and then so then we believe that but then when women do it you know women who give birth at home so often they're like that didn't even hurt that much Mm. and I'm like yeah it doesn't it actually doesn't hurt that much like Mm. yeah it's a big sensation it takes work and Mm. energy and like a mental investment in doing it but we can absolutely do birth without pain relief Mm-hmm. because it's not as bad as they say it is. And that's what entraps a lot of women. They're like, well, I want to be somewhere where there's pain relief mm-hmm. because pa- childbirth is the most painful thing you'll ever do. And I think pain is different when you are, depending on your environment. So if you're in a room that is not conducive to the optimal unfolding of physiological birth, there's the pain is going to be experienced differently that's to if you're at home with your beloveds, you know, in a place that you feel really safe and comfortable. Pain is experienced differently when we, in birth, when we are going against our mammalian needs, which is to be in a quiet, warm, intimate setting with people that we trust. Is it is it birth that was so painful or was it the obstetrics and the environment and everything that happened in the, indust- in the institution? Mm-hmm. And that's what dulls down our capacity to manage labor is yes. when we don't have what we need 
We often don't have what we need in an institution. The needs of birthing women haven't been met. And so then women experience more intense pain and then they promise to take that pain away by giving pain relief. But as having done it myself and been witnessing women doing it for 14 years, women who birth at home very rarely talk about pain. Very, Mm. very rarely. Yeah. They always say most of the time again, oh my gosh, I can't wait to do that again. That was amazing. How incredible. I am so happy, giggling and laughing in absolute bliss and joy after pushing a baby out of our vaginas. Yes. And sometimes not even pushing. And sometimes not even pushing, sometimes having them ejected from our bodies like you did. Well, you know, it's it's just so interesting, this idea of like pushing a baby out. Of course, sometimes we have to push a baby out. But the amount of times I work with people where they say, I barely, I felt like a pushing or a bearing down sensation. And it was almost like my body just guided me and it just happened. And my baby came out, you know, Zevin just flew out. I had fetal ejection reflex. Mm-hmm. Ember, I had to um, bear down quite a bit, but then Ember just flew out, yeah. you know, it was a bit slower than Zevin, but just my body did it. And so even this concept of like having to push the baby out and work so hard to get the baby out, yeah. um, it isn't always the case. It isn't necessarily the norm when we're in an optimal environment. Yes. Oh, okay. So we've spoken about giving birth at home mm-hmm. and how it's an it's an anti-authoritative move to do that in this society. Like this is an opportunity. Pregnancy and, and the whole childbearing con- continuum is an opportunity to liberate our minds and to liberate our families from an indoctrination into, you know, this system that none of us really consented to actively, but we consent to it through our continued acceptance of it. And so what can we do as we travel along this continuum to set ourselves free from these things that may not be of benefit to us? And that can't come through. Of course, we require teachers and mentors and guides, and we can learn from people and research and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, how can I liberate myself enough so that I know I'm, you know, I'm the boss, I'm the boss of my decision-making process. Like I'm willing to put myself in that position. Um, And not everybody wants to do that. And that's fine too. But there is an opportunity there across this landscape to reclaim ourselves in a real, in a very real way. um, So that whatever we want to do comes from a place of our truth, whether that's electing to have a cesarean, whether that's electing to have, you know, choosing to have a free birth, whether that's going out into the river and birthing your baby or saw a woman the other day birthing in the middle of the ocean, like, I think that's the take-home message about birthplace. Make a conscious, responsible decision about what's best for you and your baby and pursue that. Mm -hmm. Because it might be best to have a cesarean section. It might be best to go to hospital. It's quite possibly best to have your baby at home with a midwife. Mm -hmm. But rather than focusing on free birth, home birth, hospital birth, cesarean birth, is just pair it back and go, what is the best for me and my baby? What's important to me and my baby? Mm -hmm. How can I get it? And that is powerful autonomous birth. Yeah. Boom. (laughs) The Great Birth Rebellion. (laughs) I reckon we've got it. Do you reckon we've got it? Is there a take-home message? Is there anything you feel like, gosh, I just haven't said this yet and I need to say it? Um, So final thoughts. Yes, take-home message. What I really hope that we can cultivate as a society is asking more of what could go right in a situation. Um, Asking what could go wrong is a vital 
part of our preparation for birth, right? Like what, okay, what risks am I comfortable with taking? You know, what are my, what are my risk factors and how will I navigate those? But I hope with at least equal measure, we are asking ourselves and each other, what, what could go right? What would it look like for you to really go right? What would it look like for me to really go right? What is my highest vision for and what is meaningful to me? And what would make me feel like I was really centered in that experience and I'm a powerful person who's capable of parenting my child and feeling, you know, really powerful and stable within that. Because ultimately, you know, birth is setting us up. Birth is the doorway into our the next chapter of our parenting journey and lives. And we want people walking away from those experiences, feeling really competent, capable, powerful and staunch. So I just, I really hope that we can get to a place where that is as much of a valid and asked question as what could go wrong or what if something went wrong? Yes. And that is a rebellious question because the truth is, is most of the time things will go right. Yes. And we are only sold the message of birth being catastrophic and wrong because they want to keep us frightened Mm -hmm. and entrapped to a system of birth system that's been established they want to maintain yeah but we're the rebels and now we have this highly successful podcast that will hopefully start the rebellion the great birth rebellion yes please oh my gosh thank you so much and where can they find you what's your website the website you? is thestonedchrysalis.com and that really has all of my offerings and um, I am on Instagram as at ripsnorter. And I'm going to put all this information. We have a mailing list, Amy, so if there's any resources that you want me to put in there, okay. anybody who's on the mailing list and if you want to get on the mailing list, you go to melaniethemidwife.com and on the homepage there, you scroll down and you can get on the podcast mailing list because every week I send out an email with all the resources and you can click the buttons there and it'll take you to folders and folders and folders of research from every single episode and all the resources. So if you're wondering, what was that thing she said? Who was that person she was talking about? What was that website? What was that Instagram handle? It all comes through on the email every week when the new podcast episode lands on a Monday. Amazing. Amazing. And if I think about what offerings I can bring to the table around birthplace, obviously my entire career is centered around serving women who are choosing to give birth with a private midwife, whether that be at home or in hospital. And if you, this is something too, if you're a midwife listening to this episode and thinking, oh my gosh, I actually need to decolonize and demedicalize my own personal career as a midwife. That is also absolutely completely possible to do here in Australia. I know it feels like there's a stack of barriers, but one thing I've been running and I'm about to run it again, I'm about to open up enrollments in the next, you know, if you're listening to this when it just lands, you haven't missed out. But at the end of October, I open up the launch yourself into private practice midwifery mentorship and I open up enrollments for only one week and then you can get in there and I personally mentor you for an entire year. There's a whole online course, there's monthly Zooms, there's unlimited email access to me where I mentor you to move from working in an institution as a medicalized midwife or physiological midwife working in institutions because they exist as well. Mm -hmm. 
But if you want to leave that zone and start working for yourself as a private midwife, you can launch yourself into private practice midwifery under this mentorship. And 76 midwives have already done this over the last two years through this mentorship. So this thing works. So I'm thinking about how midwives can move out of that space. Mm -hmm. And when midwives go there, it opens up access for women as well. Yes. And if you're a woman thinking, oh, my gosh, I want to learn more about the physiology of birth and how to navigate this system, if you do need to go and give birth in the system, and some women do, various reasons, I also have a course on my website, melanidmidwife.com, called Transformative Birth Work. And it's got some really practical strategies there to be able to navigate this system that you might need to enter and work with in order to have your babies in the best way possible. And if you put the code word podcast in at the cart for that transformative birth work, you'll actually get $100 off if you're listening to this. Thank you so much for being here. So good. Thanks for having me. Ah, Magic. Okay. The end. The end. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs>